Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist. My name is Fiametta Rocco, and I'm the books and arts editor at The Economist. With me today is one of my colleagues, Tom Wainwright, talking to me about his new book, Narconomics, How to Run a Drug Cartel. It's about the global drug trafficking business. Tom's now The Economist's Britain editor, but before that he wrote for the paper about crime and social affairs and spent three years as our correspondent in Mexico City. Tom, there's so much confusion over what we should do to stop the trade in illegal drugs. It's the same everywhere, whether it's Britain, America, and in a particular way, of course, in Mexico. Some people think they should be legalised. Others think we should hit drug dealers as hard as we can. What was it like for you to arrive in Mexico in 2010, just as the government was starting to beef up its war on drugs? Well, the war on drugs was the subject when I arrived there. It was all everybody wanted to talk about at parties and interviews and so on. At the time, the murder rate had just doubled in the space of a couple of years. And Mexico, which actually by Latin American standards has not generally been a terribly violent country, was suddenly extremely violent. And there were some cities like Juarez, which uh, at the time was named the most violent city in the world. And it did lead to an extraordinary sort of atmosphere on the streets of some of these cities. I remember my first trip to Ciudad Juarez, walking around there and seeing buildings that had had grenades thrown through the windows because they hadn't paid their extortion money. And it was just a strange atmosphere. You saw normally in Mexican cities at the traffic lights, there'll be people selling food and fans and fly swatters and parasols and so on. In Juarez, there was nobody. People wanted to stay off the streets. It was a sort of almost like a ghost city. And this just fascinated me. It made me think, who are these guys that have reduced Mexico to this state? There have been so many books about the problem of drugs. I mean, you've chosen a very, very idiosyncratic way of looking at the industry. The subtitle of Narconomics is How to Run a Drug Cartel. What led you to look at them in this particular way? Well, I got to Mexico and I found that some weeks I'd be writing stories about ordinary businesses, you know, the telecoms business, the tequila business, whatever. And other weeks I'd be writing stories about the drugs business. And the more I wrote about these two subjects week after week, the more I saw that actually they had more in common than you might think. And when I met the guys behind these businesses, they often would complain about just the same things that ordinary managers would complain to me about with their businesses. They would talk about things like human resources problems and how to manage their supply chains and so on. And so I started to see that actually this is a $300 billion global business whose proponents run their own businesses much as ordinary business people run their firms. And so I started thinking if we start to analyse drug cartels as if they were ordinary businesses, what might we learn about them? Well, what do you think they've learned from business? Well, the book is split into different chapters based on the different lessons that they've learned. And I talk about things like franchising, where if you look at the Zetas cartel in Mexico, they have spread their brand rather like McDonald's has spread its brand. They go to cities and give their brand to local mobs and take a cut of their earnings in return. 
They worry about things like human resources, so how to manage all their employees. And this is a business with a very high turnover of staff since so many of them get either killed or arrested. And they have a, a real headache recruiting new people. Prisons, it turns out, is actually the best place for them to do so. And they even do things like corporate social responsibility, which might sound rather outrageous. But if you go to Mexican villages in the countryside where the state doesn't do very much... The cartels very often are setting up things like primitive social security systems. And the reason that they do this isn't anything to do with charity. It's entirely cynical. They've realised that in order to stay in business, they have to maintain a basic level of support among local people. And so they've started doing things like building churches and building sports playing fields and so on. And it mirrors the behaviour of some legitimate firms in so-called dirty industries, which try to launder their reputations by spending money in a similar way. So there are more and more parallels. And I just thought exploring these might tell us something about how the cartels work. Tom, one of the obvious ways in which the drugs industry is really different from other businesses is in the level of violence. Why is it so violent? And did you yourself feel scared at any point? Well, it was on my mind a bit when I went to interview some of these guys, like the gang leader I spoke to in prison, when they brought him into the jail cell that we were in and took off his handcuffs and shut the door behind the two of us. It it was uh, a consideration that I had. Um, The violence that exists in the drugs business, like the violence that exists in other illegal industries, exists here because illegal businesses have no way of enforcing the contracts that they make with other illegal groups. If you think of an ordinary business, if I'm selling you books, for instance, and you take a load of books and don't pay me, I take you to court. Of course, an illegal business can't do that. They can't use the courts, they can't use the police. And so the only way that they can enforce contracts is through the threat of violence or the use of violence. That's the sort of economic reason, if you like, why violence is so prevalent. Because, of course, violence has a cost to them as well. They have to pay for people to be bumped off. It's not a cheap business for them. And what are the drug traffickers like in person? Given the violence, one almost imagines that they're noisy, bombastic, or are they more like Walter White in Breaking Bad, sort of frail, mild-mannered schoolteacher types? Well, they're a mixture. You probably get a few of each type. One of the ones that I interviewed, first of all, was a leader of one of the main gangs in El Salvador, who I interviewed actually in prison, a guy called Carlos Mojica Lechuga. And he is one of those gangsters that has tattoos literally from head to foot. You may have seen pictures of them. He had tattoos all over his face saying, in memory of my mother, and tattoos going down his arms all over his neck. But when we spoke, he was more like an ordinary business person, really. And he ended up talking about how he admired the gangs of the East End of London. And so often they were more like business people than you might think. Some of them, though, were rather different. I remember speaking to a a young hitman in Guatemala City. He was only a teenager. The sad thing was the way that he was although he'd led this horrible life of murdering more people than he could remember, the malnutrition that's so prevalent in Guatemala meant that actually he looked much younger than he really was. He was wearing children-sized Velcro shoes, and it was just a terrible image of the way that these businesses have affected lives in these countries and reduced so many people to this kind of an existence. You talk a lot about what the um, drug traffickers do for the local population. What's the most serious deleterious effect that the drug cartels have had on Mexico? They've had an appalling effect on Mexico, and it's important to be clear about that. The corporate social responsibility is entirely cynical and very, very little compared with the negative impact that the cartels have. Quite apart from the thousands of people who they murder every year, they affect everything from inward investment in Mexico, which is diminished. They corrupt local authorities. They corrupt policemen. 
They reduce freedom of speech by killing journalist after journalist. They've had a terrible impact on the country and indeed on many other countries in Latin America, which is why it's so important that we find better ways of shutting this business down. Tom, what's the next big thing in the drugs business? Well, in business terms, again, look at ordinary business and you might get clues as to what illegitimate businesses are going to do next. The big new trend in retail on on the high street, of course, is the internet. And you see shops being undercut every day by Amazon. And in the drugs business, something similar is happening, actually. On the street, drug dealers are being undercut by the dark web, which is this secret version of the internet where sites like the Silk Road, which you may have heard about, sell drugs and indeed weapons and other things to to consumers uh, in a way which makes it very easy for them to buy things secretly and securely. And this is really changing the drugs business. It's providing people with a cheaper product, a higher quality product by all accounts, and what looks like a a safer product for consumers. Because rather like sites like eBay, they have feedback mechanisms so people can leave reviews on the website. And it's extraordinary. You look at these sites and you see reviews of different types of heroin or different types of cocaine. And people selling there will have special offers and they'll do next day delivery and all this sort of thing. And it's having the same effect on drug dealers as the internet has had on the ordinary high street, which is to say it's putting them out of business and driving down prices. And what would you say are the lessons for policymakers in all this? I mean, we've had years and years now, particularly in America, of the war on drugs and all that's associated with that. Did you come to some clear conclusions about how policymakers should be thinking? Yeah, I think a big rethink is necessary. If you look at the record of the war on drugs, this is the kind of record that in any other public policy area would immediately be spotted for the failure that it is. Over the past few decades, consumption of all the main drugs has only increased in spite of all the billions of dollars of investment and many thousands of lives lost. When you look at the economics of the business, it's not that surprising, though, that it's being so ineffective. If you look at the cocaine business, for instance, very much of the efforts that governments put into stopping the cocaine business are focused on the early stages of the supply chain in South America. But if you look at the price of coca leaf, which is the main ingredient of cocaine, a tonne of coca leaf, which is what you need to make a kilo of cocaine, costs about $400 in Colombia. And that kilo of cocaine sells for about $150,000 in the States by the time it's cut into grams. And so even if you're able to double or triple the cost of coca leaf, you're having almost no effect on the final retail price of cocaine. You're adding $400 or so to a product which costs $150,000. In the book, I make the comparison with the art market and say it's a bit like trying to increase the price of paintings by driving up the cost of paint. It's such a tiny proportion of the cost of the finished product that really that's not the way to go about it. Well, the legalisation of drugs is certainly one way. What do you think of that? Is that an opportunity? I think for the drug cartels, it's a huge threat, actually. For them, cannabis, which is the drug that's being legalised at the moment in the US and other places, makes up about half of their revenues in the case of some cartels. And so to see this entire business confiscated from organised crime and given instead to ordinary taxpaying, law-abiding people is for them a very serious threat. And we've already seen, actually signs that this is affecting the drug cartels. In the border region of Mexico, in cities like Tijuana, very big stashes of marijuana have been discovered on the Mexican side, which suggests that they're having difficulty selling it over on on the north side of the border. And in the final chapter of my book, I look at the effect that this could have on the cartels and conclude that really this is the biggest threat that they've faced in a very long time. Tom, thank you.
That was Tom Rainwright, The Economist's Britain editor and former correspondent in Mexico City, talking to me about his new book, Narconomics, How to Run a Drug Cartel. Narconomics is published in Britain by Ebury Press and in America by Public Affairs. From London, this is The Economist. The Economist.